0: Welcome to Getting Curious, I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This episode, y'all, is so freaking amazing. It's so good. It's on the most interesting topic ever. Ah! On today's episode, I'm joined by Hi'ile Julia Kabehi Pua Akaha Opulani Hobart, where I ask her, what's the cold, hard truth about ice in Hawaii? Welcome to Getting Curious. Have we got an exciting episode for you, honey? Today, we are taking a cold, hard look at how ice became embedded within Hawaii's foodscape and what this history reveals about colonial relationships to the tropics. So let's welcome to the show our guest, Hi'ile Julia Hobart, who is an assistant professor of Native and Indigenous Studies at Yale University. An interdisciplinary scholar, she researches and teaches on issues of settler colonialism, environment, and Indigenous sovereignty, and her new book, Cooling the tropics, ice, indigeneity, and Hawaiian refreshment. She explores the social history of ice and refrigeration in Hawaii from chilled drinks and sweets to machinery. Ah, how are you, Hi'ile? I am so well. Thank you for having me today. So, congratulations on your new book, by the way. Thank you. Yes. So your book is premised on the idea that, quote, while temperature is measurable, quote, cold is subjective. Can you explain that distinction for us?
1: Yeah, I can. When I started to dive into the world of freshness and refreshment, one of the things that I noticed was that while we've known for a really long time how to measure temperature, the language that we've come up with to talk about temperature becomes relative to our own bodies, really the way that we feel in the world. So the way that we talk about cold is relative and it's socially learned. The feelings and affects that we attach to temperature reflects particular social values that have been developed over time. An example of that, is for Native Hawaiians, sometimes when we talk about coolness, we are talking about passion, right? things that the Western world very often attaches to heat. This reveals not only the ways that we think about temperature as like a normative quality, but also things that we find pleasurable, delicious, relaxing. These are all values that become attached to the body.
0: So does that mean like, If you're from a place that's like super cold, like you wouldn't think that like being cold is like as fierce because you're like, oh, it's fucking cold all the time. Whereas if you're from a place that's like really hot, you're like, ooh, I like like colder stuff because like it's never like cold here. Is that like an example?
1: Yeah, I would say that's part of it. Or also what you think is being like a totally normal way to feel. So those of us that grew up in warm climates, like it's kind of not a big thing to us for folks whose heritage is from really cold places. Right. Those values are different than somebody that might walk outside and say, oh, my God, it's fucking cold out.
0: (laughs) Okay, so what other like thermal language should we keep in mind as we dive in?
1: Some of the thermal language that I lean on heavily in this book are concepts of freshness and refreshment. Freshness as a way of thinking about the cold chain and things like freezing and refrigeration technologies that we don't necessarily think of in terms of like bodily pleasure and enjoyment. But refrigeration and refreshment become really subtly interlocked and developed across time.
0: Oh, I mean... I do love a good cold cocktail <laughs> on a hot day, though. It is nice to like, but it's not, I, I know, I, I bet we're going to a place that's like, that's our colonized relationships to the tropics. I know, I hate it. I don't like, I know, as soon as I was like, oh God. I,
1: Every time I have a cocktail, I feel so guilty. Now i wrote a whole book knowing about what it means.
0: <laughs> okay, so like, where does ice freeze naturally in Hawaii?
1: So ice will freeze naturally in Hawaii, mostly seasonally, but sometimes unseasonally at the summits of some of our tallest mountains. Hawaii has uh, fantastically tall mountains. So snow will fall most commonly on Mauna Kea, sometimes on Mauna Loa, and occasionally on Haleakala. So Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa are on Hawaii Island, commonly known as the Big Island. Haleakala is on the island of Maui so really at our
0: tallest summits. So what's the significance of these sites for indigenous communities?
1: One of the places that has become really significant in contemporary indigenous politics in Hawaii uh, comes out of uh, longstanding resistance to the development of the summit of Mauna Kea for uh, scientific and astronomical research. But historically, uh, Hawaiians talked about ice and the cold frequently in our stories, our mo'olelo, which are basically storied histories of place. Even though these spaces were very often restricted to royalty, to really important cultural practitioners, while Hawaiians didn't typically summit mountains into cold places, we talked about it and thought about it all of the time. This becomes significant because once Westerners start to arrive in Hawaii, and go off to explore things and measure things and and do all of the activities that uh, colonialists like to do when they're in new places, they started to imagine that the summit spaces were empty spaces that were ripe for the taking, and Native Hawaiians instead belonged along the shoreline. And we can see the development of these ideas as the tourism industry emerges where Native Hawaiians became service workers, became beach boys, became objects of uh, sexual fantasy, right? This is the kind of work that Hawaiians were thought to do in the places that Hawaiians were thought to belong. Uh, And summit spaces became these empty spaces for Western imagination and development. And this starts to really underpin ideas about what Hawaii is for, right? What purposes that it serves. And Hawaii eventually comes to be imagined as a place that is a playground, that is a racial laboratory, that is a space for global science. And these all have to do with accumulated knowledges about topography and territory and environment.
0: So when did that start?
1: We've got late 1700s, early contact, Captain James Cook. And this kind of starts to slowly bring folks to Hawaii's shores. By the early 1800s, by maybe the 1830s or 1840s, the floodgates open. The Western world is showing up on Hawaii's doorstep. And this starts to change everything.
0: What political and social changes were happening? Like, was Hawaii, like, governed by, like, the royal family at the time?
1: So, Hawaii has a relatively new monarchy in the 1800s. And the story about that monarchy is a little bit complicated because of the way that Hawaii begins to model itself off of Western polities Part of the reason why this happens is because Hawaii is jockeying for legitimacy on the world stage, right? So if you can fashion yourself as a civilized, legitimate nation state, you protect yourself from colonial infringement, right? You protect yourself from imperial uh, powers coming in and trying to take over. So this starts to roll out across the kind of the middle part of the 19th century where constitutions are being developed, where private property landholding starts to emerge as a concept uh, that is opposite to communal landholdings that basically dictated how Hawaiians lived before. So the city's landscape evolves in accordance with changes in governance Uh, The material infrastructure of the city and also the social fabric, including ideas about religion and commerce.
0: So America's global ice trade touches down in Hawaii in the 1850s. Can you set the scene for us of like what life was like in Honolulu at that time? Like who was living there?
1: Yeah, big changes for Honolulu in 1850. 1850 is the year that Honolulu becomes designated as the capital city of Hawaii. Before that, it was Lahaina, Maui, Kamehameha the Great, King Kamehameha I moves the government seat to the port town of Hawaii. Uh, At that time, it was maybe 100 or so Native Hawaiian households, something that we might think of today as a village. And then in the next 10 years or so, we have buildings popping up made out of lumber imported from the Pacific Northwest. We have whaling ships filling the harbor. We've got the harbor being widened and deepened in order to accommodate trade. We have missionaries coming and all kinds of uh, religious ideas about sexual expression uh, and civility and piety becoming embedded into the social fabric. So we have this. Huge explosion of foreign ideas, foreign goods, and foreign commerce that is reshaping the city and expanding it enormously.
0: So it's like basically like this monarchy was governing, but like even that existence of that monarchy was like all kind of being shaped by like what was going on at the time, which was like rapid expanding in like the United States and people like all of those like Western powers were like jockeying for land all over the place like at the time so that that I think that makes sense so how did American ice then end up in Hawaii and like how was it received because it's like a really long boat ride I feel like
1: it took a lot of effort to get ice around the globe the American ice trade deserves a whole podcast on its own because it's super fucking fascinating. This guy, Frederick Tudor, he basically dominates the American ice trade across the 19th century. He develops technologies for uh, insulating ice in the holds of ships such that he could minimize ice melt. So he's harvesting pond water from the American Northeast in Massachusetts and Maine, Typically, he's using sawdust as a byproduct of the main lumber industry, packing everything in and sending it off on ships across the world. The majority of the ice trade goes to cool down, sweltering British colonialists who are in Bombay and Calcutta um, and really desiring a nice cold drink. Speculative shipments go off to, to South America, to the Caribbean, to the American South. And some of it goes to Hawaii. Not a ton of it goes to Hawaii. But to get ice to Hawaii from the East Coast required going all the way down the East Coast of South America around the Cape Horn, back up to San Francisco, which was a major port at that time, and then across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii.
0: Holy shit
1: probably took at least three to six months. And I think they lost a fair bit of that ice to melt. But what really blows my mind about these particular shipments and these journeys is that you kind of think that they would be going through all of this effort to preserve something, right? To keep maybe a particular product cold and fresh on the way across. No, they were going there to make cocktails
0: that fucking tutor man i bet he was a dick uh so that's happening to cool everyone down and give them cocktails it's basically like cooling down all the oppressors like of the world the ice trade um so great
1: that's a way to put it yeah you could you can put it that way so it's basically arriving speculatively what's that mean again that means folks are sending ice across, thinking that there might be a market, but not having a previously established market for these particular products.
0: And they're like, "Hey, if you want some of this, how did that commerce work? Like, was the first one free or something?
1: Two stories that I can tell in regards to that first tutor when he first came up with this business idea. He was trying to send it down to places in the Caribbean, uh, particularly Cuba, and sending it to like bars and saloons to be served. And actually nobody had developed a taste for it yet. And nobody particularly was interested in having cold drinks. So he had to bribe bartenders to automatically start putting it in people's drinks and did that for several months before folks developed a taste for it. So we have these ideas that like it's inherently refreshing to have these things, but it was actually a learned social practice, and he had to bribe people to start to like it. The way that it goes to Hawaii in these ships, as part of these uh, speculative markets, is that ships are bringing so many goods to the East Coast from abroad, everything from fruits, to whale products, to whatever they're going off around the world to bring back, right? They have full ships coming home. They don't want to send empty ships going out. They want to figure out some way to turn a profit on the outgoing shipment. So you harvest ice, you pack it in. If you sell it, great. If you don't, or if you lose some, no harm, no foul, because you were heading there with an empty ship anyway.
0: Mmm. Okay, that makes sense. So does that mean that they like wanted to get stuff back from Hawaii to take to go sell?
1: Hawaii is basically sitting at the crossroads of the Pacific. So ships would stop there to refuel supplies, seamen would go on leave and get their yayas out, whatever their whatever it was. And so Ships were bringing things back from Hawaii itself, but also from all of the places that were bringing in uh,
0: goods to Honolulu as a port. So how would people like consume ice? Was it like all alcoholic beverages or was there like iced water or like ice cream or like cold beverages that weren't liquor?
1: Yeah. So ice kind of shows up to this particular social landscape of elite businessmen, of native Hawaiian royalty, to seamen who are on the... I'm, I'm such a child. Every time I say seamen, I can't...
0: I've been laughing, too, every time on the inside and I'm like, focused, because when you said it the first time, I was like, oh my God, why are we talking about that? And then I was like, oh, got it. Like, were, yeah, sailors, I'm obsessed. A Seamen is, like, fun to say. So, yeah, we yeah. were just doing that.
1: Because of the missionary influence as well, we have all of this piety that overlays the social fabric of Hawaii. So ice gets consumed in alcoholic drinks, but that consumption is restricted essentially to white businessmen and Hawaiian elites, though there are laws against Native Hawaiians uh, consuming alcohol. And then we have the sailors who are on leave that are looking for a good time. They can't afford to go in the bars and saloons to have ice cocktails, right? They're drinking room temperature booze. And then we have the missionaries who are expressing their piety with drinking ice cold water, right? So that they have this kind of like bracing pure refreshment Uh, That gives them uh, some matter of indulgence, but not boozy
0: indulgence. Would a woman not be pious if she drank alcohol? Because that made her like a big old slut or something. So like like no women could drink alcohol and be pious or something?
1: Correct. Booze is only for loose women.
0: Got it. And then for men, it's like if you can hold your drink, you can be pious if you just have like one or two but if you're like a big old sloppy drunk then that's not pious either or if you like cheat on your wife or something or did they just like not really give a fuck for men
1: i think if you're a religious guy you're not drinking alcohol either
0: oh so it's only for like businessmen who were like modern day slags but in 1850
1: yeah the cosmopolitans of that time
0: Okay, I got it. So as it arrives to Hawaii, like, does ice cream get popular? Do these more, like, European, like, Western ideas of food start to become popular?
1: Yeah, they do. Ice cream becomes massively popular. I mean, it still is, but it became a really important form of refreshment in Hawaii from maybe the 1870s through to the 1920s, right? If you were a child or a woman who was social ice cream was the thing that you could consume for refreshment that reinforced your purity and your chastity.
0: Oh, really? Because it's, like, cold
1: and white, and there are all of these imaginings about, you know, dairy and milk that get kind of triangulated across, like, femininity and your ability to be desirable and appropriate...
0: Gross. Why are humans so basic, in the words of Anna Delvey? Because, like, refrigeration and refreshment. And that, like, relationship keeps coming up. And as we talk about this more, I'm, like, really, like, understanding more. What was, like, refreshing beforehand? Was it, like, some gorgeous fruit or, like, jumping in the ocean? We're an island people. We're a water people. You know, jumping in the ocean, jumping
1: in gorgeous mountain streams, all of that, like, prime refreshment.
0: Love it. Just like, didn't, okay, I'm obsessed. Okay, so we know that like, you like piousness and like purity and like these ideas of like civility are all really racialized and related to like colonialism. So like, is there any other ways that like this consumption of ice like mapped onto the idea of like racialized like civility and like Western civility?
1: I think that has to do with the alcohol industry Right. So there were these ideas that Native folks shouldn't drink because they were prone to drunkenness. They couldn't hold their liquor. Right. It was only white men that had the self-control to consume alcohol, but not let that alcohol consume them.
0: So you write in the 1850s, ICE in Hawaii, quote, inspired visions of plantation futures for would-be colonialists who measured white leisure against black and brown labor and, quote, placed thermal comfort at the heart of such colonial imaginaries. Can you break down this idea for us? It's so important, and I want to make sure listeners understand it.
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I've thought about with cocktails, particularly in this time period, is that the consumption of cold alcoholic drinks really got attached to ideas of leisure And implicitly and adversely, ideas about race and labor. So, if we think about the plantation industry, ice and ice drinks come to refresh the plantation overseer, but not the plantation laborer. And a lot of ideas about blackness and brownness at that time were correlated to who was best adapted to work in the hot sun and who was best adapted to sit in
0: the shade, have a drink, and oversee that work. Ugh. So that's the ways that, like, eugenics and, like, evolution was, like, mapped onto, like, people. And that was also the same ideology that said that, like, women were best evolved to, like, have babies and, like, not work and, like, stay in the house. And, like, was just, you know, so misogynistic. And, like, also, like, the violence of the gender binary, like, also comes from, like, these same schools of thought. So, yeah, that's major, and thank you for Clarifying that for us. What about like slavery and like Hawaii's like past? Cause it's like, I just am never really thinking about like that kind of history. So, did like Hawaii have like a stance on that? Did they, were they like, they don't do that here? Like for like the people that were coming from North America, or was like, what was the deal?
1: In the middle of the 1800s, Hawaii's sugar plantation economy starts to really boom. And Hawaii didn't have chattel slavery, but it did have indentured labor. So uh, those indentured laborers came from a lot of places in Asia. It came from Portugal. They tried to experiment with a group of Norwegians at one point. They were really pulling labor from all around the world, not under the framework of slavery, but simultaneously imported a lot of those same racialized ideas about labor under the hot sun that become attached to the plantation space.
0: Let's look to the 1870s and 1880s in Honolulu. Who now had access to ice? And for what uses, like, beyond refreshment was ice being used? Like, did it become, like, more common and, like, more available?
1: Yeah, it did. So ice becomes shipped to Hawaii in the 1850s and 1860s. It stops being shipped. And by the 1870s, not very much time later, uh, freezing and refrigeration technology starts to emerge. So rudimentary ice-making machines arrive on Hawaii's shores with a bunch of inventors and folks that are experimenting with ice machines for a lot of different reasons, those small machines become more refined and more reliable, and it expands pretty quickly into ice factories. And once you get those ice factories and that kind of output, it starts to democratize access to ice, such that people are not only consuming it with more regularity, but they are also getting ice delivered to their homes for refrigeration.
0: Mm. So how did that like switch to machine-made ice that's like locally made and stuff? Like how did that change Hawaii's physical landscape?
1: I would say that it it begins to reflect Hawaii's physical landscape. So we've got increased urbanization. We've got massive infrastructural development, uh, the expansion of road systems. We have the very first glimmers of suburbanism that start to happen. There are people that are living a little bit further away from the city center. And so it kind of gets inserted into this technology boom that really characterizes Uh, the 1870s and 1880s in Hawaii.
0: And then socially, like, ice becomes more, like, democratized, more available to people, like, enters people's, like, daily life more at this time. How does the Hawaiian monarchy react to this new ice technology and uses? And also, like, what does that do to the political landscape?
1: So the Hawaiian royalty have already been kind of out on the world stage for several decades and are traveling globally I'm going to have to go back and uh, double check when Kalakawa comes into power, but he comes into power in the 1870s. He's a monarch who loves technology, like he's a tech guy and he's traveling around the world in the 1880s. He's meeting with inventors in America and Europe. He is super fascinated by Thomas Edison's incandescent light bulb, and he recruits these technologies to come back to Hawaii and modernize the city. So this is actually a huge point of pride for native Hawaiians that our palace had electricity and plumbing and telephones before the White House and Buckingham Palace. We were cutting edge.
0: Ah, that's fucking cool. What did like the people who weren't in the royal family or like that hierarchy in Hawaii think about all of that? Like, was there just people like all over the map? Like some were like, yes. And some were like, get the fuck out of here. Like, was it just all over the map?
1: I think that it was a pretty complicated intersection of nationalist pride and also anxiety about Western encroachment.
0: Okay, so yes. And so then how did that moment lead to, or does it lead to like a hierarchy of taste in Hawaii?
1: It does. And it really happens through this clash of Western tastes and cosmopolitan ideas of consumption with indigenous foodways and native Hawaiian politics of consumption. So we have the way that Native Hawaiians had always eaten without freezing and refrigeration, fishing, growing. If you don't have a refrigerator, you're not going to be hanging on to your fish for days on end, right? You are eating things that are freshly harvested all of the time at room temperature, generally speaking, or you're cooking things. Maybe you're eating things hot. And then we've got these Western ideas of coldness and purity and refreshment. And so we have, right, native Hawaiian foods that are sour and salty, room temperature kinds of things. And then we've got these Western prize tastes that are sweet and cold. That, right, kind of butt up against, like, the tepid and the salty and the sour.
0: So do people still, like... Like all of it? Or did that just think like for like a cool like fusion?
1: Um, I think it depends on what class you were, what race mm. you were, what your daily life looks like.
0: Because not everyone had access to that cold stuff.
1: Right. It's mostly democratized, but it's not it's not like how today everybody's got a refrigerator or two hanging out in the basement. Right. It's still relatively classed. And it's how people perform their class, right? If you have these cold, sweet things, you are indicating to the world that you can afford it, that you have cosmopolitan taste, that you are chic.
0: So ice was like the Chanel bag of the 1870s.
1: Yeah, maybe a little bit less expensive than Chanel. Let's see, what, what's like the next tier down?
0: Like having like a Lexus.
1: Yes, exactly. That's the class sweet spot right there.
0: Uh, Okay, okay, I love that idea. Okay, okay, well, I, I guess I don't love it, but I love that I understand it more. Okay, so we got to speak in our cheese episode about U.S. restrictions against raw milk cheese and the biases and anxieties around it. You write about a similar quote, microbiopolitical forms of settler colonial governance. How did Hawaii's annexation to the U.S. in 1898? Okay, so it happens in 1898. How did that usher in a new era for food safety and regulation? It's a great question.
1: We have annexation in 1898, a bunch of American military-backed businessmen depose the queen in 1893, put her under house arrest. A provisional government is set up until the U.S. government is able to unilaterally annex Hawaii by a vote that only happens in the United States, and then at that point they decide that Hawaii will become a territory. Hawaii is a territory until 1959, at which point it becomes a state. And with annexation came the importation of a lot of American legal frameworks that are brought to Hawaii and come to bear on the social and political landscape there. And one of the ways that it becomes articulated is through food. So in 1906, we have the Wiley Act, which is the Pure Food and Drug Act, which essentially aimed at regulating product labeling, but really product labeling in terms of ideas of purity, quality, right? You're buying a product that won't get you sick, that won't have anything in it that you don't want in it, right? That's unadulterated. And that kind of spins off into a lot of different ways of classifying food according to particular criteria. One of the things that I spend a lot of time looking at and thinking about is ice cream and how ice cream becomes shaped by the Pure Food and Drug Act, which is that the U.S. kind of had a little checklist of, is it ice cream? Is it not ice cream? It had to have a certain percentage of um, butterfat in it. This becomes a huge matter of concern. Um, It has to contain, you know, X numbers of milk solids, whatever it is. So we have particular foods becoming quantified and classified according to new American legal frameworks.
0: And we've talked about on getting curious like the disruption of like Native American food ways like because of like colonialism and like the atrocities that like happened in Native American people. but like how does like this just completely monumentally shift like the indigenous food ways after the 1910s?
1: The way that I come at this in the book is through the story of one particular man who I find so fascinating. His name is Edward Blanchard. And he kind of pops up as a blip right on the landscape of historical figures about Hawaii. And he kind of disappears from view after the 1910s. But he arrives to Hawaii in this time period to become the food inspector who worked under the Hawaii Department of Health. And Edward Blanchard is there to reinforce all of the pure food and drug laws. And there was a fair bit to reinforce. One of the things happening in Hawaii at that time period was all of these Western diseases were kind of running amok through Hawaiian society. And Native Hawaiians are particularly vulnerable uh, to these forms of disease because they haven't built up immunity over time. One particular outbreak that happens in Hawaii in the early 1910s is traced to these urban poi shops that native Hawaiians are buying their staple food from. And Blanchard, uh, it's his job to go in and take care of the situation. He closes down all of the poi vendors in Honolulu. You can't get the staple food anywhere. So all of this stuff is happening at this time. People are dying. Nobody can get the food that they need or want. And he gets completely derailed and distracted from this moment because he becomes obsessed with ice cream in the city. And he comes to the conclusion that the ice cream in Honolulu is not up to American standards and it doesn't have enough butterfat in it. So he writes to the president of the board of health. And he says, look, something more urgent's coming up. Can you get somebody else on the cholera beat so that I can start to uh, arrest people for not selling rich ice cream?
0: Priorities.
1: Priorities. I'm super fascinated with this guy because it's, it's kind of fucked. Right. The people are dying, but he wants to make sure that the ice cream is rich enough. Uh, And for me, that really says so much about what's getting valued in this particular point in time when American power is on the rise in Hawaii. Because in some respects, it's a life and death situation that gets completely sidelined and ignored for purposes of intensifying pleasure and richness and sweetness and coldness.
0: So what does that work further reveal about the U.S. attempts to, like, civilize Hawaii and, like, impart American ways of life on Hawaii?
1: I think that it really does something to increase the value of imported foods, of Western foods, and to decrease the value of place-based Native Hawaiian foods. Mm. So Hawaii is getting a huge amount of importation by this time period. Before this time period, you know, the vast majority of food imports are already coming from the United States, and this just reinforces it even more.
0: So what other sites and sources worked to like adapt local taste to American ideals?
1: One place that you can really track changing tastes is through institutions right? Hospitals, schools, training centers, whatever it is that has a kind of food program, you can look at what's on the menu in those places to really see how they're forming ideas about what people should be eating. So even in Native Hawaiian schools and Native Hawaiian institutions, you can see traditional foods that are starting to almost inevitably always be capped off with ice cream for dessert, right? It's that first thing. That starts to appear and to start to shift the foodscape
0: Is the ice cream for dessert thing.
1: Yeah, it's the ice cream for dessert thing. It's the beginning of the end.
0: Also, what's poi?
1: Oh, yeah. Poi is like mashed up a uh, fermenting taro root. It's mashed up with just a little bit of water and then it naturally ferments over time. So as it gets older, it becomes sourer and kind of more probiotic.
0: But now we can eat it and it's like a thing.
1: Yeah, now we're loving it, but it's not cheap. It's super expensive to buy at the supermarket Maybe you're lucky enough to have the time and the resources to make your own. A lot of folks are starting to buy poi from local producers now. That's changing in Hawaii as we speak. But at that point in time, it was like the staple food. It was like at the heart of every single Native Hawaiian person's dinner table and lunch
0: table and breakfast table. It was like a really central like food source.
1: Yeah, it was like one of the main things.
0: So what's the significance of shave ice aesthetics and iconography from 1959 when Hawaii became a U.S. state and onwards?
1: Well, yeah, so this was kind of the last part of the book that I wrote, and it was a chapter that I was really avoiding for a long time because I kind of didn't really know what to do with it, right? I knew that it was important to the story of ice in Hawaii, but it took me a long time to fit it into the trajectory of my story. So shave ice uh, comes to Hawaii in the early 20th century, by most estimations, uh, by way of Japan. So there are a lot of uh, Japanese sugar plantation workers. Uh, In Japan, they have kakigori. They bring it over to Hawaii. They start selling it in the plantation communities, out of plantation stores, and people are eating it and they're really enjoying it but it doesn't become significant to the story of how we think about Hawaii until the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s, so essentially the post-statehood moment. The reason why this is so interesting to me is that Shave Ice is around for a really long time. It doesn't get celebrated until a moment when multiculturalism becomes the selling point for American statehood. So before that, there's all of these anxieties about Hawaii's appropriateness as a U.S. state because it's not white enough, right? There's too many people of color in Hawaii. There's too many Asian people in Hawaii. Remember, we're coming out of a moment of Asian exclusion from the U.S. And this starts to change in 1959 when the U.S. decides, right, instead of being super anxious about the multicultural society of Hawaii, it becomes celebrated as what the U.S. could be. And shave ice, all of a sudden, the iconography of it starts to pop up everywhere, right? Rainbows explode all over Hawaii as the symbol of multiculturalism. And shave ice fits straight into that because it is an edible rainbow.
0: hmm that makes sense it's also interesting that that becomes like a selling point and then it would still be like six more years before like the voting rights act is passed and it would be like six more years before like black women would still have the right to vote in the united states but what does this emphasis on like quote multiculturalism miss and get wrong like the erasure of indigenous people
1: Yes. And so through all of these celebrations of liberal state multiculturalism, uh, one of the effects that it has while it is celebrating diversity, it also collapses Native Hawaiian identities into just any other ethnic category in Hawaii, uh, which really starts to erase the political specificity of indigenous peoples.
0: Yes. Yes. Hawaii has its own specific cultural history and its own specific language, its own, like, very specific, like, its own story. And there's, like, really specific, like, beautiful histories that, like, deserve to be, like, honored and respected.
1: Yeah, and I think that it also sidesteps claims to political sovereignty that are so important for Native Hawaiians.
0: As long as we're talking about giving stuff back and, like, returning power to, like, the places where it's supposed to, like, it's, like, Hawaiian, like, unstatehood a thing,
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of folks want that. A lot of folks are trying very actively to envision what it would be like for the U.S. to get the fuck out. Hawaii was overtaken illegally by the United States. The U.S. is illegally occupying Hawaii and um, they should not be there.
0: Yeah, especially when we like look at how mad we all were, like with, you know, Vladimir and Crimea and stuff and like Ukraine now. Like, we literally did that.
1: Yeah, there's a double standard. Yeah. Mm.
0: Like, we literally super duper did that. Bunch of times, bunch of times, bunch of places. So many, yeah, so many (laughs) times, bunch of times, bunch of places. So, How does the cold chain in Hawaii function today? Like, if a natural disaster were to strike Hawaii, like, how would food security fare?
1: So one of the most often repeated statistics about Hawaii is that it imports about 89% of everything that it eats. And only 11 or so percent of what Hawaii eats is grown there. And this is a little bit of a tragedy because Hawaii has a nearly year-round growing season. It has these histories of incredible abundance, and yet folks that live in Hawaii are super reliant on the global food chain in order to get their daily sustenance. A lot of people think that the reason why groceries are so expensive in Hawaii, and Hawaii has some of the most expensive groceries in the United States, is that this food travels a really long way to get there. But as I drilled down into the data about the costs and the economics of all of this importation, one of the things that I realized was that a lot of the expense comes from energy infrastructures that are required to keep things cold and fresh. So it's the freezing and the refrigeration technology that is the really expensive part of all of this food importation, right? Things need to be kept at a particular temperature as it goes from, you know, say South America up to ports in California and over to Hawaii. Uh, That's a long time to keep something fresh. And it's really expensive.
0: Because if it was like some like jerky that like could stay at room temperature or like you didn't have to keep it like refrigerated to a certain thing like it would be like so much cheaper to like get it over there like because it was just because like all of that cost just gets passed on to the consumer
1: yeah and I mean it still costs money to do all of that importation
0: but like way more expensive due to keeping it cold
1: yeah, it it takes a lot of energy. And once it gets there, it has to be kept cold too, right? It has to be kept cold in a warehouse, in a store, and once it gets to the home, in people's refrigerators. This is an energy-intensive system.
0: So that makes sense. So what can the story of ICE in Hawaii tell us about broader U.S. interventions in foodways, especially in other places enmeshed in U.S. imperialism?
1: For me, I think one of the most important parts to remember is that we've become super reliant on thermal regulation for our daily sustenance, right? And that has become incredibly normative to the way that we live our lives, right? We don't really think about our refrigerators and our freezers as being part of this story of colonialism. We don't really think about our cocktails as being part of this story either. And that's because it's become completely normalized in how we live our lives. There's something really dangerous about that normalization because we take it for granted, first of all, and that we don't connect it to broader uh, global histories and, of course, to the future of the world.
0: It kind of reminds me of Meredith Broussard, who taught us about the term techno-chauvinism and how, like, when we think that, like, a machine can, like, do it better than, like, what a human could or would, it, like, makes us super reliant on, like so many things that, like, we do take for granted. Like, if electricity went out tomorrow, like, all that food spoils. Like, and I think also we think of, or th- at least me, like, you think about, like, times before refrigerators and, like, before air conditioners as being these, like, really, like, primitive, like, scary, like, weird other times. But, like, and also I feel like kind of disconnects you from the reality of, like, what it is to be, like, human and, like, and it also makes you feel like, oh, well, that was such a long time ago and we're not like that now. But... We actually still are like that.
1: Yeah, there's a kind of precarity that comes with this overdependence on freezing and refrigeration technologies. And I think, you know, those earliest months of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, really hit that home for a lot of folks that were struggling to get their hands on food. Right. The, I mean, the food yeah. chain really started to fall apart for a while and it was scary and it was really difficult for the most vulnerable among us.
0: So who's working to restore indigenous foodways in Hawaii? And how do foodways factor into calls for Hawaiian sovereignty?
1: The food sovereignty movement in Hawaii has been really active over the last 15 or 20 years. And there are a lot of community groups in Hawaii, both Native Hawaiian and non-native folks that are working in solidarity to not only restore indigenous foodways, but to also restore the ecosystems that support them. So there are chefs that are working with local ingredients. There are also food producers that are working with traditional agricultural technologies in order to uh, facilitate and foster better food security.
0: Such important work.
1: And for me, this really hinges on the ways that food traverses, right, our tastes and our bodies and cuisine, as well as agriculture and the use of land, right? And so calls for Native Hawaiian political sovereignty are about the return of Hawaiian lands back to Hawaiian uh, people, but also, when we think about food sovereignty in particular, it's the power to dictate one's own food systems.
0: Mm. So, with writing Cooling the Tropics, what was it like to research? And, like, how did you develop the idea and the framework for this?
1: Well, Jonathan, it was a real pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, what if the challenges uh, in picking a topic that was so normalized that it kind of fades from view was that it ended up being really hard to track, right? There's nothing in the archives that indexes pleasure and coldness. There are very few ways that you're not just like looking for a needle in a haystack. I have a library degree and I think that made me overly ambitious or maybe cocky when I was coming at this because I'm like, I'm trained to do this shit. I can find the needles in the haystack. And it took a really long time and it required me to look all around the issue, right? So I had to think about where and when people would be talking about weather, would be talking about comfort, would be talking about race and leisure, would be talking about alcohol, purity, right? All of these things that create that become part of the fabric of the story and eventually when you stitch the fabric together enough you get the picture of ice but it took a lot of work
0: so where would you find that like diaries newspapers
1: photographs menus material culture uh government documents laws anything i could get my hands on i had to get really creative
0: The menu sticks out to me. Like what was like the oldest or like randomest thing that you found on like a menu?
1: I spent a lot of time with the menus that were produced for um, entertainments at the Royal Palace. So what the Native Hawaiian royalty were using for diplomatic dinners, hosting diplomatic dinners. um, You had some turtle soup. You had ice cream. You had Native fruits. It was just this whole cacophony of tastes and products that were coming together that showed Hawaii off as a civilized and cosmopolitan space.
0: Because it's like as news was starting to spread and like journalism and like word of mouth, like because like things were just moving a little bit faster, like by the 1800s, and they were like realizing that people were talking about things like eugenics and like evolution of people and like civility. I just would imagine that would be such like a... Simmery, boily, scary time just for all of like places that were dealing with like imperialism and colonialism.
1: But one of the best bits about Hawaii in the 1800s is that native Hawaiians were so down with print culture. It was an incredibly literate population and native Hawaiians wrote prolifically and published prolifically in both the English language and Olalo Hawai'i, the first language of Hawaii. And so there's actually a huge corpus of material that you can look at in the Hawaiian language to see how Native Hawaiians were processing all of these social changes.
0: Was there like a more popular response to those social changes? Was it all over the spectrum? It
1: was all over the spectrum, and it was actively and hotly debated uh, within these kind of fields of, of print. It's this whole cacophony of voices. Sometimes we think about print culture as having these dominant voices, and there are some dominant voices, but there is such a proliferation of Native Hawaiian ideas and stories in this time period that are super important.
0: So what do you hope people take away from from your project and from this book?
1: I want to push people to interrogate kind of the the hidden fabrics of their daily lives and to understand how and why they're there and how also we've been trained to not really think about them because they come from somewhere and they come from reasons. And I want to really think about what those reasons are. I want to start paying attention to what sometimes gets normalized or hidden.
0: So, I mean, you have like such an incredibly fascinating academic background with degrees in food studies decorative arts, design and culture, and library science. So fucking cool. So how have each of these academic experiences informed your work?
1: I'm a little bit of an academic odd duck, but I think one of the things that I've come to appreciate about interdisciplinary work is really the freedom to ask questions and to have confidence that those questions can guide the methods of the project right? So many folks that work within disciplines have these rigid frameworks for how they can come at a particular idea or concept. And for me, it was like, I have this question. It's kind of a weird question. And I'm going to go in whatever direction I think I need to go in order to get at the answer. And I didn't have anybody telling me that I couldn't come at it this way or that way. For me, that is the joy of being an interdisciplinary scholar.
0: I love that it like feels a little more fearless, like feels a little bit less constrained. Like you can ask the questions you need to ask and you don't need to be like so worried about like, you just got to find the answer. And it comes from like a lot of different sources. And I just think that is so cool. We got to read that you're now working on a project about cultural memory, uh, commemoration and hauntings in Hawaii state parks. (sighs) Can you tell us a little bit about where you are with this project?
1: I can. It's in the really early stages I'm trying to think about the post-statehood moment, right? Hawaii becomes a state. All of a sudden it can access all of these federal funds. Once it can access federal funds, it invests in these infrastructure projects. Two of the biggest infrastructure projects that Hawaii invests in are roads and state parks. But once it designates these spaces for state parks, right? Spaces of leisure and tourism, both local and continental tourism, they have to figure out what to do with all of the like people and landmarks and things that are in these spaces. And so it completely reconfigures these social landscapes. So that leads to weird negotiations with the state to be able to remain on state park lands very spectacular evictions of villages that lived in these places, the removal of native Hawaiian remains and bones, like all kinds of things get removed from these parks. And I'm really interested in tracking these reconfigured human and non-human
0: geographies. It's so cool and so interesting. Has there just been any like haunting is haunting? Like, is there just like, is there someone like...
1: Yes, there are so many hauntings. There are so many... Ancestors that um are in these places that have ideas about um being returned to these places. There's a lot of stuff going on.
0: Wowzers. I am so fascinated. This has been like so eye-opening, but I just love you so much. And also, like, we have to have you back to talk about your new project when you're done. Cause like, wow, part two, we are obsessed, and we're just so grateful for your time.
1: Jonathan, you are such a wonderful interviewer and you're really kind and you're really generous. And I'm really grateful for this opportunity to talk to
0: you. Oh, my God. The pleasure is literally all ours. And he, Eli, congratulations on the book, y'all. We are going to include a link so you can buy it and get into this research and get into this work. This is the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. So, honey... You got a lot more where that came from.
1: One of the things about the book that I love so much is that when it was getting published and they mocked up this cover, this beautiful like rainbow cover, I was talking to the designer and I was like, do you think it would be possible to make it like shiny or sparkly somehow? And they were like, we don't really do that. And then I got word just last week that the publisher agreed that they would do an iridescent cover, but only for the first run. Of the book, so I'm gonna have get a. Sh- it. I have a shiny edition, and the shiny edition is the first edition, and then oh, subsequent man. printings will be on you know pretty standard paper. So but-
0: run, don't walk. Yeah, run, don't walk for the first edition. You'll get the shiny one. Oh my god, must get the shiny. Oh my god, I can't wait. but you guys, you need to get the shiny one too. So go get them books. <laughs> ah, thank you so much, Heele. Thank you, Jonathan. This was a pleasure. Ah. <laughs> You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was he Ile Julia Kabehi Pua Akaha Obulani Hobart. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim.